0: And I say to myself, what a wonderful weird. See what I did there? Ooh, don't don't.
1: Yeah. Don't. What? I thought you were going to start on one of your weird songs. That was I was doing the end I was doing a Louis Armstrong impression at the end of that song. It was, Ooh yeah.
0: You sound like a I don't know, a prehistoric man coming. That's what I thought of.
1: Dan, how are you? Can I do it as a caveman the rest of the show? No, Uh, I am doing just fine, thank you, Riley. It's spring in
0: Canada's capital. Tonight, when you go to sleep with Mary, and I want you to um, I don't sleep. I want you to come out of the bathroom naked, and I want you to go. Tonight, I'm going to do it as a caveman. Just to see what she says.
1: I would have something thrown at me,
0: and then share it with the listeners. Yeah, right. And come out just holding a big bone. Uh, (laughs) Oh, that came out wrong. (laughs) I meant like a big. Where
1: are we going with this? Dinosaur bone. It's because it's spring, and spring is a time of awakenings, libido, birth. Right? Yeah. You've got. You have got some naughty business on your mind. No, I don't actually, but it is such an amazing time right now. I cannot believe how
0: quickly the snow melts. I love it. There's mm-hmm. grass visible everywhere and we're supposed to, mm-hmm. we're supposed to get a really big rainstorm overnight, which should take the snow even more I killed away. my
1: first bumblebee of the season. Did you really? I like to slaughter those things. Well, what good, what good do bumblebees do? Oh, you're going to open a big hate <laughs> box with that one. I'm joking. I'm joking. I've not seen a bee yet. I did see some uh, Canada geese. They're making their way home. A uh, good listener, Canada geese, uh, depart Canada in the winter and they head down. south so they can poop on golf courses there and, uh, and return in the spring. And, uh, but they, they keep on going. They, they go to the great lakes and, and up to the north. It's great. We have a great relationship with them.
0: But here in Canada, we also refer to retired people who head to Florida for the winter as Canada geese. Yes. But they're far, yeah, but they're not as athletic. We call them snowbirds. Oh, you're right. Snowbirds, not Canada geese. What the hell's wrong with that? I'm
1: you? in a, like, fugue state. Yeah. Well, that's a perfect state to begin uh, tonight's episode.
0: Dan, I have an interesting story. Well, it's about dime Riley. To tell you tonight. Um, so this is what happened. I decided that I would do um, a story that I'd come across a little while ago that I found really intriguing. But then, when I started to research it, I discovered there wasn't enough to do a whole episode, but then I started to discover other mysteries associated with this particular location. So, tonight, you're going to get three different stories. What? Yeah. I'm doing kind of like a, a potpourri, or what do we call those? Um, grab bags. A smorgasbord. A smorgasbord, yeah. So, tonight, Dan, um, The Weird is going to give you three tales of West Texas that's the that's the the over that's the the umbrella the overarching theme three tales of okay. West Texas now the interesting thing about West Texas is it's super deserty and mm-hmm. super remote and a okay. lot of it borders Mexico a lot of times when we think about spookiness we just don't think of deserts right we just we tend to think of things other than, we think of deserts when we think of UFOs, but we don't think of uh, deserts when we think of ghosty, spooky things as often as we, we should. So tonight we're going to concentrate on- Very cool. These, these areas in West Texas, which are super barren and remote, very small communities, very undeveloped terrain, harsh terrain. And uh, we're going to tell you, I'm going to tell you three stories of, of that take place in West Texas.
1: Again, and I'll say this because not everyone listens to all the episodes, but Riley and I don't plan our episodes together. We do not. Sometimes we might know in advance of the recording what we're going to be talking about. Uh, In this case, I have no idea what he's about to talk about. I'm wondering if you're going to touch upon a story that I was thinking of doing down the road. And it's okay if you, you did. And I'm still dreading the day that we come to record and we've got the same We've been working on the same thing so i'm really looking forward to this i'm really looking forward to this because i i know very little about this stuff
0: well like i said we're talking a deserty extreme weather it's an area that's favored by hikers by rock climbers by people like that uh, adventure seekers
1: are, are there any like town what's like the biggest town in west texas well i'm going to be telling you about
0: one town tonight called marfa which is pretty well known uh, but it is. I've never heard of it. Marfa, yeah. If you'd ever seen Giant, you would know of Marfa. Or Oh,
1: okay. Um, come yeah. back to the
0: Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean. Marfa's referenced in that as well. Okay, so the first story I'm going to tell you tonight is the one that I started off with, and then it led me to others. And this is the story, Dan, of the Big Bend Tablet. So we're going to 1962, the year of my birth, Dan. And in that year, uh, Donald and Riva Uzel. There are a couple. We're hiking in the Torneil Creek area of Big Bend National Park. First of all, Big Bend National Park is a hotspot of weirdness. It's hmm. There's stuff going on there. There's been UFO sightings. There's been monsters. There's been some weird fossils found there. There's supposed to be lots of ghosts there. It's just a real cool
1: paranormal paradise. Why is it called Big Ben? I think of the clock uh, in Bend. London and oh, big bend like bend over
0: bend big bend national park this park is located in west texas of course and it's known as i said a hiker's paradise it comprises eight hundred thousand acres give or take and it borders on mexico and this is interesting it's known for having the largest desert and topography of any location in the u.s so desert and associated topography so if, if you want to experience very a deserty location, Big Bend Park is
1: where you're gonna go. You got to, they have snakes and stuff, and yeah, it's ugh. well. We have snakes here. You could just go. I can just go into the woods here, see a garter snake. There's venomous rattlers there.
0: Uh, the park features archaeological areas of interest that actually date back about ten thousand years. Just to give an example of how interesting the park is, it's home to more than 450 species of birds. 56 oh, species of reptiles and 75 species of mammal. It is one of the largest and most least visited parks in the United States.
1: Can you hear that? I feel like the the, the ceiling is gonna come down on my head. Like you tell them, right? Dad's recording, knock it off. It's probably the dog with my daughter. Uh, this is fascinating. This is fascinating that such a tiny area would have such a wide range of, and especially considering how arid it is, such a wide range of fauna and flora. 800,000 acres, Dan, ain't tiny. I know that's big, but it that's still a, a, like a huge variety of, of, of animals.
0: Yeah, but some of them are very odd, right? Yeah. Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah.
0: This is neat. Okay, so it's Christmas time. And Donald, as I said, Donald and Riva Uzel. so Donald is hiking on his own, and he discovers an L-shaped rock formation up ahead, and he decides he's gonna explore it further. He's a pretty good climber. When he gets closer to it, he finds that there's a small cave opening in the formation, and within it, he's surprised to discover fragments, broken fragments of what appears to be a tablet, like Moses kind of tablet, like a big stone tablet. The fragments have been neatly stacked together. And when he begins to um, sort of investigate them, he sees that they're filled with strange symbols that he does not recognize. Hmm. And he looks and he's like, this doesn't seem to be any language that I've ever encountered in my life. So Don brings the fragments down with him and shows the others who are accompanying him. They're at the camp. And they move them around and they discovered that these fragments actually fit together perfectly like a jigsaw puzzle to form a large tablet. Okay. So Don speaks with his wife about it, and they decide the wisest thing to do at this point would be to bring the fragments to the park authorities because they're on park property and that's what you're supposed to do. And and like I said, this is a park that's got a lot of archaeological finds in it. And I believe that in in the when you enter the park, you're asked to do that. If you find anything. You know, it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the property of the park. Yep. So they do, and they speak with a chief naturalist who's there at the time named Douglas Evans. And he notes that this, the inscriptions on the tablets look fresh, and the substance appears to his eyes to be the river silt that's found along the banks of the nearby Rio Grande. The, okay. the Rio Grande is very, is very close to the park. So he believes that this is all just a big hoax. Okay. So nothing more is heard or recorded about the tablets for eight years. And this is the bad part. I'm going to tell you this now because it's important. They eventually crumble to dust. Oh, no. They're gone. They're just a big pile of dust. However, the Nichols, who they were with, had taken photographs of the tablet before okay. it was handed over to the Big Bend Park officials. They had taken several photographs. And they first showed those photographs to a man named Lewis Church. And he had written an article on ancient writings. And so they thought, we'll reach out to him. And he then in turn contacted the Classical Languages Department of Brigham Young University. You've heard of Brigham Young. It's Mm -hmm. a very well known.
1: Isn't it a Mormon uh, school? Is it? In Utah? I don't know.
0: Perhaps. so. So experts at that institution noted that the symbols were very reminiscent of Old Greek Alphabet. Oh. In 1969, seven years after the discovery of the tablet, oh, and this, I guess, happened before the event that I mentioned earlier, reached out to Jack and Bernice McGee. And these were two folks who often wrote articles for a magazine called True West, True West Magazine. So they, in turn, shared the information with a doctor, Cyclone Covey. (laughs) I love his name, Cyclone. I'm Cyclone Covey. So he's a doctor? Yeah. Doctor Cyclone. Dr. Sacklone Covey, played by Matthew McConaughey in the movie. (laughs) And he works out of Wake Forest University. And between 1969 and 1977, the McGees also exchanged correspondence with the chief naturalist at Big Bend National Park. Okay, And they also contacted so many academic organizations, I can't even list them. But again, one of the most notable letters was from the guy I mentioned earlier, Douglas Evans, and he was the chief naturalist at Big Bend Park. And in 1970, he wrote the following. The so-called tablet was not made of clay. It was made of sunbaked baked mud, which had been peeled from a recently soaked mud flat, such as which occurs along Tornillo after a flood. It was extremely fragile and it couldn't be handled without crumbling. It was not weathered at all, indicating it was of very recent origin. When I first saw it, I thought these people had made it themselves the day before. Apparently not. But someone else had made it a short while earlier. It laid in my office in the maintenance building for many weeks. I showed it to any and all who might be able to shed some light on it. Everyone agreed it had no archaeological or historical significance. It disintegrated from handling, and the move down to the new administration building finally turned it into a pile of dust. Anyway... As long as we were able to hold it together, no one who saw it believed it had any antiquity. The consensus was that a Mexican goat herd had sat and doodled in the mud with a stick. (laughs) My favorite part is the image of the Mexican goat herd just sitting there with a stick, just making crazy symbols in the mud. Well, Bernice McGee was livid over this response and she said she found Evans' reply to be unprofessional and dismissive. So in 1970, Bernice McGee... The Nichols, the Usels, and Miriam Lawrence, who worked at Sol Ross University, all journeyed back to Big Bend National Park. And at that time, they gathered samples of dust and debris from the cavern where the tablet had originally been found. So they took a whole bunch of samples, and these were sent to experts for analysis. And it was later determined that the tablet had in fact been made of bentonite, which is a type of mud found in abundance around Big Bend Park. Okay. On July the 5th, 1977, the McGees publicly stated that the first translation of the tablet had been completed by Professor Barry Fell of Harvard University. So someone had finally been able to decipher what all the symbols meant. He had determined over years of study that the text had been written illiterally in Iberic language, very debased Roman Iberic script, and lines five and six had been deliberately written in Iberic and Lycian. I mean, this doesn't mean much to us. We're not language experts, but the tablet had been written in a style that's known as boustrophedon which means as the ox plows. And all that means is the first line is written from left to right, but the second line goes from right to left.
1: So it's like a snake.
0: It snakes yeah, its Yeah, way... it snakes down. So that was one of the reasons that they had had such a difficult time deciphering it, because not a lot of texts are written. So his translation of this tablet, and let me tell you, like a million academics have seen and looked at this up until this point, and this is what we get. Why this suffering? Ah, what anguish. A call to prayer, 29th December. First winter month, year six. Heal us, heal us, heal us. The faithful by sorrows are beset. Oh, guide us, Mithras. Show forth thy power and the promises of aid as reveled by Ahura,
1: Mazda. Amen. Okay, hold on. So you mentioned a whole bunch of gods' names there. Yeah, we're going to talk about that. So this appears to be
0: a prayer written to the god Mithra.
1: Yeah. Mithra was a sun god in ancient
0: Zoroastrianism.
1: Ah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. so hard to say,
0: Zoroastrianism, and that's a religion that began in Persia in 6th century BC. Right. And that started with the revelation of the nature of the universe to the prophet Zoroaster. So, Zoroaster, this entity had revealed everything about the universe to this prophet. Okay. In the religion, the followers believe that existence is a constant struggle between darkness and light. Yeah, duh. Mm-hmm. And that man must choose the side that he wishes to support. So we have free will to determine which mm-hmm. side that we're going to go on. So I note the cult of Mithras was an offshoot, as I said, of Zoro. St- so hard to say, Zoroastrianism.
1: Zoroastrianism,
0: and it was adopted and spread by the Roman legions. So the Romans had picked it up, and it had spread
1: through. Well, their and lakes. they absorbed everything, right? Everything that was in their way. Yeah, they were like little vacuum cleaners. It, I, I read. I read something about that. That they sort of were so superstitious that they, if they thought that there was any value in, in your, for example, your religion, they would sort of just adopt it as well, just in case those gods could curry them favor. Mm-hmm. Isn't that, it's not necessarily that they worshiped them, but they were like, yeah, 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 okay. So that, that and in turn it allowed them to, to grow and, and to become even stronger, right? Because they were just very accepting of all cultures and religions.
0: So they spread the word of the cult of Mithras, Now, in in this belief system, places of worship were always natural caves or underground sanctuaries. The primary images associated with this religion is the Tauroctony. And the toroctony features the god Mithras, Mithras, I guess Mithras, killing a bull. And in these images, Mithras would often have the heavens visible under his cape, And very often a snake, a scorpion, a dog, and a raven would appear in the images, these animal images. Now, the cult of Mithras was a secret religion. And so the belief system was passed on primarily orally from
1: person to person. So no written records of it exist. Mm -hmm. Interesting, is it uh, monothea, monotheastic? Is it one God or is it, it's it's, okay. So Mithras and uh, others, I believe, yeah. There's more than one God.
0: I think so. Yeah, I didn't get into. This is as far as I got into the religion because I don't want to talk about
1: that. No, it's just fascinating to me. I, I, I was going to ask though. Uh, like, was that uh, followed by the Greeks as well? Like, yeah, I'm not. I'm not doing what you did with um, Paimon because that was a cautionary tale. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It was never try to. Um, Uh, Get a devil to work for you. (laughs) Uh, Knowledge
0: of the stars was a very important component of that belief system. And they followed the movements of the heaven extremely carefully. And that was very useful when traveling by boat because they were experts on the stars. That's them. So back to the prayer on the tablet. It was clearly a plea for divine intervention. Note the phrase, heal us, appears three times in rapid succession in the prayer. Now, I got to tell you something here. It's important to note that Fell from Harvard was, in fact, a marine biologist. That was his area of expertise. He only studied ancient languages as a hobby. But he published a really fascinating book in 1980 called Saga America, and I read parts of it. It's really interesting. So Fell suggests that the tablet could have been brought by a group that sailed from Spain and eventually landed on the Gulf Coast. And it was likely one of many such voyages. So there was a lot of transit. And they believe that this group of people in sort of classical era came over, traveled, and at some point something happened and they had written a tablet. They had written a prayer on a tablet, which was what they would do. They would, you know, engrave the prayer. So it would have some, you know, substance and probably just left it there. That's his- Okay, so sorry, when do
1: they think this would have happened?
0: In this era. In which era? In this era of Mithras. So we're talking like- Yeah, yeah, right. Sixth century BC. Yeah.
1: See, that's Well, and you bring that up because I know that there's some speculation, for example, that the Egyptians had made their way to South America, right? Which is why you see the the pyramids in- Well, a uh, lot of people believe
0: that um, there were people routinely coming over. Mm-hmm. And 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 traveling down to North America, and you know that I, I could have gotten into this because I uncovered this in my in my research. But I decided not to go into it. There were Roman coins found all over the place, in like Alabama, I think, in
1: Kentucky, and Tennessee. So yeah. there's there's lots of evidence to prove that there were people here way back. The Chinese, the Chinese as well. Uh, apparently, I don't know the the date range, but in, you know, thousands of years ago, they think the Chinese were also uh, going up and down the uh, the western coast of North America.
0: So it, the part that I love about the story is the amount of work these people went through trying to get somebody to answer about the tablets. The Park Service just dismissed the whole thing saying, this is just a big hoax. Somebody was doodling in the mud. But a lot of people believe that this is a very important archaeological find, but it doesn't exist anymore. All you have is photographs.
1: Well, the, the, the odd thing there is if, if it was written thousands of years ago, how on earth would it survive if it's on this super fragile mud It's protected in a cave, right? Yeah, I guess. And it's not, we're
0: talking a a desert where there's not a lot of heavy weather.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. But didn't they think it was fresh? Well, that's what the park guy thought, but I mean, whatever. Okay, okay. They thought he was super dismissive and just didn't give a shit. And the alphabet used was like an ancient Hellenic or Roman? A whole bunch of stuff together. As I said, it was Ly- Lycian,
0: Lycian, I guess Lycian, Lycian was in there. Yeah, mm-hmm. a whole bunch of alphabets. I think the Greek, parts
1: of the Greek alphabet were in there as well. Yeah, it's written in Iberic, Roman Iberic script. Be a weird prank to play to grab a language no one really knows. Right. And break it up into smaller pieces. And, and also use that eventually. weird
0: way of writing left to right, right to left, left to right. Mm-hmm. So that is the legend of the Big Ben tablet. Very famous,
1: very famous tablet. No, it's not very famous. I've never heard of it. Well, I've come across it a couple of times. Yeah, that's not very famous. Okay, well, you're an idiot.
0: <laughs> Being contrary, you grumpy old thing. Okay, now we're gonna move. That's it. That's all I have on the tablet. But I love, I love the Big Ben tablet, and you, you can I see. I find
1: but, that fascinating. And yeah, you can see
0: pictures of it. it. There's tons of pictures of it on the internet. So you see what it looks like, and. There's so many people involved in trying to uncover what was going on. It's hilarious. There's just, they sent it here. They sent it there. They sent it here. They sent it there.
1: And the pictures still exist? Oh yeah, of course. So this is what I can search. Oh yeah. Oh,
0: neat. Could you imagine if the moment the tablet crumbled to dust, all the pictures did too? That
1: would have been cool. That would have been right out of uh, Indiana Jones.
0: Yeah. There you go.
1: Interesting. I can see what they're saying, though, where it look, it does look fresh.
0: Who knows, Dan? Who knows? But it would have been somebody who had knowledge of these languages.
1: Yeah. It's still a weird, if it's, it's a prank. A it's prank. a really odd prank. And it's definitely not uh, random scratchings.
0: And also, this was a remote location. This wasn't heavily traveled. It wasn't on any routine hiking trail. It would You had to work to find the cave. So, you know, lots of people visit the cave to this day, by the way, they're very curious about it. All right. Ready for the Have raves in there? <laughs> Are you ready now for the Bruja Canyon spirit? Yes. So, Bruja Canyon, which is located in the park, actually translates to which canyon? Because, you know, Bruja, Bruja. This is really interesting. It's actually one of only two canyons in all of Texas, that huge state. That big-ass state only has two canyons. Bruja Canyon is one of them. Bruja Canyon, Dan, as the name suggests, is a very haunted location, according to legend. So, just some of the things that happen there. Photographs taken in the canyon cannot be developed. What? Yeah. Like, even now? Well, no, now you can because they developed instantly. But there have been instances where people have tried to take photos of strange things and they can't be developed. Visitors to that location have also observed, of course, strange flashing lights in the sky. The most famous incident involving Bruja Canyon was in 1978. Two hikers from Houston. Oh, by the way, this gives you an idea of how big Texas is. From Houston to the park is a 13-hour drive. Wow. That's how big Texas is.
1: I did the Houston to San Antonio trip when I was a teenager with my sister and brother-in-law who I have not brought up in a long while for you. Uh, it was, I remember it being several hours that yeah, trip. I it's don't a big, big state. It's a big ass state. It's, it is huge. Yeah. And don't go there for an abortion. Amen. Right? Yeah. It's God's country.
0: Yeah. Fuck. Well, not really, but according to the government, it is. So in 1978, two hikers from Houston, Chris and Charles, decided that they would explore the area around Bruja Canyon and uh, they were already on a hike. They were on a four-day excursion. They would brought food and water for four days. They were experienced hikers. As they walked, they passed the ruins of Terlingua Abajo, it had once been a, a prosperous settlement. And so a lot of people still to this day visit the ruins. Apparently it's fascinating because the church was made of stone and okay. it's still standing. It's very spooky. It had been a farming community that was extremely prosperous. And this is kind of sad. Mining had destroyed all of the timber and bad farming techniques had killed the soil, so it had kind of contributed to it ending up being a desert.
1: Oh, interesting! So it was more prairie-like, maybe. Yeah, yeah. They had just
0: they had worked the land to death, literally. Okay. So they uh, finally reached an area that they thought was good for camping. It was a nice sandy area near the notch that forms the entrance to the canyon, and it has tall rock walls on either side. It's really powerful and very beautiful, and that would shelter them if there was any, you know, wind or anything that night. It was a beautiful, clear night. The sun set and the moon came out. After their meal, uh, they hung out a bit, but they were tired and decided to call it a night. So one of the hikers, Chris, notices movement as he's trying to sleep out of the corner of his eye. And he turns his head, but the movement ceases and he can't see anything. But when he turns away, he can see in his peripheral vision a man standing there staring at him. And he notices from experimenting that the man is most evident and visible when observed through his peripheral vision. If he looks directly at him, he appears to be just a shrub, like just part of the, um, the prairie architecture. He described the man as being short, stocky, about 60 years of age, and he was dressed very obviously like a Mexican peasant. Okay. He's wearing a serape, a white shirt, breeches, and he had a sombrero over his back, his eyes were like black holes. They were unfathomable with no white evidence at all. I would note that the other gentleman asleep next to him, Charles, later described the eyes in the opposite way as two pinpricks of light. But anyway, back to Chris. Hmm. Chris senses there's incredible power emanating from this apparition, so he decides not to approach it or do anything because he feels he's in danger. After about 30 minutes, the man vanishes. And Chris manages to finally fall asleep. Jeez, as if. I'd be out of there. I would not fall. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he thought maybe, you know, I don't know. Maybe this was just my imagination. The next day, he brings up the incident to Charles, who was asleep next to him, who then confesses that he too had seen a man watching them and had also observed that the form seemed most evident when looked at sideways or peripherally.
1: Okay. Hold on a second. If you and I were camping and we saw that, there's no way in hell I'm not waking you up and going, Riley, Riley, there's someone here. Like, I'm not sitting there. And then, I know. right?
0: Well, he was scared. You can read their, um, they actually both have written an account of it. And it's online. You can read it. In a very detailed manner, they describe what they saw and how okay. it happened. So, the next day, they continue their hike. They return to the car and uh, spend the next night at a campground. However, they decided that they're going to go back to the Canyon the following evening, which will be the night of the full moon. So with this plan, the next morning, they get up, pack up all their gear and get into their car and it won't start. Oh. Now they're experienced campers and they know they're going somewhere remote. So they had the car tuned up. What uh,
1: model of car was it? Don't be an asshole. We're a car podcast, Riley. We've got to get the listeners want these types of details. It was a Buick Century. What size rims were on the car? 17-inch. Great. I just made all that up. So they
0: had had the car tuned. It was, should have been in perfect working order. Okay. They both felt and sensed that they were being pressured not to return to the canyon. So they managed to get a jump start, and the car finally started, and they left the park lickety-split. Throughout the whole drive back to their home in Houston, they felt as though they were being pursued. So two years later, they returned to the canyon. And this time they experienced nothing out of the ordinary at all. And they just put it, they just put it down to being one night that just, you know, all the, the stars were aligned and this ghost of a Mexican peasant or whatever showed up. Mm-hmm. I found this so frustrating to research because legend has it that the canyon is haunted by a Mexican witch. Do you think I could find that legend anywhere? I hate when that happens. I read so much folklore about Beruja Canyon and Big Ben Park getting ready for this podcast. Could not find anywhere the freaking legend written down.
1: You, you see it in Reddit where people will like reference things and you can't find what they're referencing. I could not find this, Dan. And I looked and I'm a good researcher. Uh, so they say the
0: legend, this is as much as I could get off the Internet and, and reading books. Haunted by a Mexican witch, she is known to take the form of a large black bull and terrorizes visitors. Now, visitors to the canyon, to Bruja Canyon, have also heard the sounds of wailing and grief and sorrow. And legends state that the voice is actually that of a Native American woman who drowned her children in the Canyon River so that they wouldn't be captured by settlers. Now, who does that sound like?
1: Ilarona? Yeah, what was that right. that? La Irona.
0: La Irona. Exact legend, like to a T. Yeah, I was actually going to say that. Yeah, it's you. exactly the same thing. So, Bruja Canyon known to be a very powerful paranormal location lots of people have gone there lots of people have, have seen shit and it's the typical stuff you go on youtube you know they're oh you know we, we were there we were chased by a spirit but this is the only the, the 1978 incidents with charles and uh and chris is the most famous one and so they say it's an it's a very haunted location so there you go Cool. So that's my little story about Buruja Canyon. And lots of people still go visit it. And like I said, they consider it to be a paranormal hotspot.
1: So I wonder if if that's the
0: origin of that. It isn't, though. That story comes from deep, deep South America. I thought it was Mexican,
1: that, that. I know, I know. I always say that. I'm bad with geography. I'm no, with no, but it. so in that, with that story, I know that's a long time ago that you brought, you did that story. It, did they have a specific river where she did it?
0: It was the river near, near where she lived. I would have to go back and open my it was. file. okay, okay. But okay, okay. very obviously too, they could have brought it with them. That yeah. legend just could have made its way
1: yeah, there. Yeah, yeah.
0: And they maybe shifted it a bit just by saying, you know, oh, well, this woman was, this Native American woman, this time not a, a Mexican woman, didn't want her kids to be taken by settlers. And, you know, there you yeah. go. All right, the final story in this trilogy of terror is the story of the Marfa Lights. So the town of Marfa is not in the park, okay? It's close by. It's about 90 minutes away from Big Bend National Park. But given the size and scope of Texas, we're not talking that far. Now, to give you an idea about Marfa, it's kind of a community we would want to live in. It's all artists and artsy-fartsy fun things. Uh, It's kind of like Austin, but a little bit even more out there. And it's become this place where painters and writers and everybody live. Now, to give you the idea of what kind of town we're talking about, it's got one traffic light and a population, a steady population of about 2,000 people. Okay. Marfa's super famous on, in um, the UFO community because tons and tons, hundreds and hundreds of people have observed strange lights in the sky, mostly around an area that's called Mitchell Flat. And that's in the desert near the town. And everyone in the town of Marfa has seen the lights. The lights are described as being about the size of a basketball. So that's interesting. Usually lights in the sky are bigger, but these are basketball size and are various colors. And they behave in a very odd, random manner. They hover, they fly rapidly. They sometimes merge together and then split like cells. And okay. they're, they just, what are you looking at? The map. And they just do really crazy things. They just move like really erratically with seemingly no pattern or purpose. The indigenous people in that area have all had also reported seeing the lights for years. And in their folklore, it was established that they were fallen stars, which is quite beautiful. So they believe these lights that they were seeing are fallen stars. The lights are first mentioned sort of formally in 1883 when a cowhand named Robert Reed Ellison, I love that name. It sounds so butch. <laughs> my name is Robert Reed Ellison, and I wear chaps. Cool name. I like it that is, one. It does. It sounds classy. Robert Reed Ellison. And he saw the lights while driving a herd. I just made a terrible typo. I just noticed in my notes I spelled herd like I heard you. <laughs> oh my God. I'm practically illiterate. He was so spooked by the lights that he told everyone in Marfa what he had seen. They were all like, you know, come on now, Robert, you were drunk. You shouldn't have drank any of that skank whiskey. So anyway, that's what happened. A group of cowhands saw the lights in 1919. There was a whole bunch of them together and they actually rode on horseback out into the desert to try and find the source of the lights, but they couldn't find a single damn thing. During World War I, People saw the lights, and they feared that they were being used by the military of the opposing governments and forces to guide an invasion. This is at night, eh? Yeah, and if you're going to – yeah, of course. If you're going to invade someplace, you're going to invade West Texas. What? What?
1: But <laughs> they that's what they believed. What was that movie in the 1980s where the Russians invaded Oh, yeah, and US it's all kids that – With Patrick Swayze and – Yeah, and the kids fended off. Oh, what was that called? And they, but it's the same idea where they're attacking like the middle of nowhere.
0: I don't remember what and it's And they're called.
1: not even Russians, they're Cubans. Does that make sense? What is called? The Breakfast Club? No, it's- um, The Goonies? Weird Science. Uh, weird Science. No, what was it called? Red something, wasn't it? Red Dawn. Red Dawn. But it didn't make sense because they're attacking like a small town in the middle of nowhere. Oh, it's, a, i remember seeing
0: that movie. It's made for 14-year-old boys. I loved it. Yeah, when you were 14, right? Mm-hmm. In 1943, during World War II, pilots at nearby Midland Army Airfield also saw the lights. Mm-hmm. So they were in the sky, and they more than one person saw them. And they, they, too, worked hard to try to locate the source of the lights, and they could not find them.
1: Oh, that's interesting. I know.
0: It's kind of cool. Now, this is something I love. In 1955, while filming the notorious film Giant... One Mm -hmm. of the most famous films from that era. James Dean saw and became so obsessed with the lights that he he purchased and kept a telescope in his hotel room. So he saw them too? He saw them. Yeah. Oh, interesting. And 1955, well, that was the year he died in a terrible car crash later that year. I don't think the two events are related. I just thought I'd bring it up because, you know, that was died very badly. Was
1: Giant the last movie he made?
0: It was. It was released posthumously. Yeah. Yeah, and he was, I think, uh, nominated posthumously for an Oscar. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I think it was actually, I read in my notes when I was researching this, it was the first time someone had been nominated posthumously.
1: Oh, interesting. Uh,
0: uh, Mrs. W.T. Giddings claims that her father was lost in a blizzard when the lights suddenly appeared and led him to a dry cave, thereby saving his life. So she said that her father had this experience where the lights were actually helpful. Now, I should note that the lights appear at completely random times. According to records, they've appeared approximately 30 times per year since they were first noted, and almost always just after the sun has gone down until about midnight. Now, you're going to like this because you
1: loved that guy. Who's that guy that
0: you always go on about? I should know his name by now.
1: Oh, uh, Judge Reinhold. Who? What person am I always going on about? Swift Lazar.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bob Bob Lazar. Lazar. Okay. This is a Bob Lazar kind of person. So one of the most famous investigators of the Marfa lights is a guy named James Brunel. He's a retired NASA aerospace engineer, and he grew up in Marfa. He actually went to the high school. In 2000, he came back to live in Marfa and saw what he described as, and I'm quoting, a shocking light display for which I could find no reasonable explanation. So Brunel immediately began a long investigation of the phenomena he installed 10 wide spectrum and infrared cameras throughout the marfa area and he also studied footage of the lights in order to try to identify some kind of pattern and now as a result of those investigations which lasted about 10 or 12 years what are you doing what are you reading look in the map he published four books about them so you can you can get okay. those books there's four of them In the books, he puts forth some very complicated theories and I'm not going to go into them because I don't even begin to understand them. There's one about underground friction, which it's all about tectonic this
1: and whatever. So he's not trying to say it's. Aliens. He's trying to say that it, there is a scientific explanation for these. Well, maps. there's a couple of them that he, he puts forth. He doesn't really support
0: the alien thing, but he's determined to figure it out. So, okay. like I said, the underground friction one is one of his biggest ones. But I know there's only one kind of underground friction I care about. Anyway, go Brunel on. is considered an expert on the subject. So, anybody who wants to know or talk about the Marfa lights, they go to Brunel. So his theories are, Dan, extraordinarily complicated, extraordinarily complicated. There's one really popular one about headlights and refraction, light refraction, but mm-hmm. that doesn't explain the fact that they were seen so far back in history and that the indigenous peoples also saw them. So that kind of poops all over those theories. Okay. So in 2003, the town of Marfa built the Marfa Mystery Lights Viewing Center. And this is a giant adobe structure just outside town with fixed binoculars and restrooms. I'm looking at a picture of it right now. <laughs> it's really something.
1: Yeah, it's, it's really a bit weird. Of I, it's odd. Yeah.
0: So there's also a legend that the lights are the ghost of Apache chief Alaste, who haunts the mountains. And it's said that he he was an Apache chief, he perished defending his home from settlers, and that his ghost now roams the nearby mountains carrying a light with it.
1: See, I was going to say this sounds less like UFOs and more like a spiritual thing. But the lights are really fast and random. It's not usually
0: ghosts don't generally or haven't, to my knowledge, been recorded as moving in that way. Now, many others believe that they are 100% UFOs and that they're, they're performing scientific experiments. Others have suggested that they are the ghostly apparitions of Spanish conquistadors. I love that one. But like Hmm. I said, UFOs is the most popular and accepted theory. And as I also said earlier, Marfa is now a very chic, artistic town and a lovely place to visit. People love to go there. And if you go to Marfa, you can stay in the room James Dean stayed in. And it's almost perfectly preserved. So you would be staying in it the exact way he did. Cool. Yeah. So that is the story of the Marfa Lights. It is one of the most well-known, ongoing UFO manifestations. Well, I say UFO because that's what they believe, but it's one of the most ongoing of that kind of things in the States. You can still go. People still see them. People, Someone saw them last year.
1: I like to think they're spiritual orbs. Spiritual orbs. And this is not far from Big Ben. No, it isn't. It's 90-minute drive. Because Texas
0: is big. Yeah. It's a big, big-ass state. Um. So, Dan, three stories, the Big Ben tablet, Blue Canyon, and, of course, Marfa Lights.
1: You did not cover the story that I was looking at. So we're still in the clear. Good.
0: These stories kept um, cross pollinating in my research. So I thought I'll just put them all together because there wasn't enough really with the tablets. The tablets isn't as well researched as one would like. Um, So I thought I'm gonna add a little bit more icing to that cake and make it really festive. And so three little stories, but all from the same part of the world.
1: And it's part of the world I don't know a lot about. I like the angle you took. Why do you always have to do this? You trendset. Well, no, it, first, first time, time I've done it. shove it in my face. Look, I'm going to take an area of the world that no one really knows about and find three cool stories just so you feel like an idiot. Not at all.
0: But the Brugia Canyon won the 1978, um, that event in 1978. is very well known in the paranormal community, the, the ghost.
1: I'm going to show you up next week when I do a story on the McDo- Ronald McDonald characters like Birdie, uh, the Hamburglar, Grimace. They're weird, eh? The Ronald McDonald characters. That was that was really. Grimace out there. is weird. I'm, what is Grimace? All of them were. Yeah, but Grimace. The purple blob. Grimace is weird. Yeah. A purple blob, and and Ronald McDonald is terrifying. I don't know how I liked him as a kid. Well, because in a kid, when, when as a child, we're
0: a little bit more innocent and accepting. Yeah, Ronald McDonald's a creepy. I remember he tried to lure me into a sewer. Oh, well, you're lucky you didn't go, Georgie. You know what i um I actually stumbled across the other day and watched a bit about remember that terrible McDonald's massacre that occurred? Where did that happen California I think I it's California, that. New Mexico. Oh my God, a gunman went into McDonald's and shot and killed like thirty
1: people. Well, it happened so much down there that but it, yeah, yeah, it was just of- so awful and i think it was in it's very sad it was it?
0: california or somewhere like that maybe new mexico okay. or something but yeah it was like oh i keep coming across that and because i still listen to true crime podcast and every now and then you come across
1: shit that's like oh i don't want to hear this
0: but these stories i liked because they're fun and spooky and non-violent and that's what i like
1: oh you're saying that because of my last
0: week that was that that was well, it wasn't. It was just really disturbing. It wasn't like that werewolf of Bedburg. Your werewolf of Bedburg is still the jewel in the crown, but it was just disturbing because you just really want to know what's going on. And the film, the fact that it's on film,
1: right? I know that's what makes that one so so very strange. I feel like I've been dark all season. I need I need to lighten it up. You're still locked uh, up with though, right? You're story. still
0: locked up because
1: you have an immunocompromised daughter, and that's horrible. And so and it's starting to because I had Kowiki, I had. I had the Jack the Ripper, then the these the the two Swedish twins. I need to lighten it up. I'm gonna find something that is more goofy uh, and fun, uh, joyful yeah. and goofy. Yeah. Next week. I know exactly where I'm
0: going next. Oh no, it's one I've always wanted to do, and I decided I'm just gonna take a step. Oh good. At it. It's gonna require a bit of research,
1: but I'm down for it because I'm on holidays right now. I actually know what I'm gonna do. I'm calling it right now. It's a, a listener suggestion. Oh good. And I'm taking it and running with it. Bravo.
0: I love this. And speaking of which, if the listeners out there, don't forget guys who are in the vicinity of Edinburgh. I'm going to be there for the entire month of August uh, this year. So I would love to have a meet and greet with anybody who wants to come and see me. I'd love to see you. And just for the first time ever, actually meet some listeners. Because this podcast launched just before COVID. We've met no one. So it would just be kind of cool. So reach out and I'd love to hear from you. And uh, that's it. We're not going to talk anymore. As always, folks, please uh, continue um, to be our companions on this journey because we do it for you and we love that you join us and we'd love that you give us feedback and suggestions. We just love doing this. It's a little breath of fresh air. It's a place that Dan and I can, you know, meet every couple of weeks and talk and just be friends and have a good time. Yeah, that's
1: it. Super dupes. There you go. Super dupes. Folks, uh, if you enjoyed what you're listening to, please feel free to spread the word of the weird with your community. If that community happens to be in a jail, <laughs> don't feel like you need to tell everyone because we don't want uh creeps as our audience, except for you. If you're listening to this and you're in jail. Uh, Just know that we believe in you and we believe that you can reform yourself. But please don't share this with uh, your fellow inmates uh, because uh, they scare us. Not you. We know you're on our side, but we don't know them. And if you're
0: in a jail and you happen to see a kind of manic-looking Swedish girl, leave her
1: alone. Mm. Just walk away. You had to bring that Leave her alone. Okay. You had to bring that up. Well, uh, thanks, everyone, for joining us on this journey wherever you are in the world. Good night. And don't forget, say to yourself, what a wonderful weird. The stars at night are big and bright. Deep in the heart of Texas, the prairie sky is wide and high. Deep in the heart of Texas, the coyotes wail along the trail. Deep in the heart of Texas, the rabbits rush.